Hello and welcome to Rocket Talk, the Core.com podcast. I am Justin Landon here again, and this is a, another Samisode. We've decided this is Samisode number five with Sam Sykes, who is the author of the Bring Down Heaven trilogy, which began with the city stained red and follows up with a mortal tally in January. The, the mortal tally. Well, now it's the mortal tally too? Yeah, it was the, it was always the mortal tally. It's like, you, you, you need to know these things if you want to be taken seriously. Uh, and follows up with The Mortal Tally in January of 2016. He also has a Pathfinder novel coming next year titled Shy Knives. Welcome, Sam. Hi! So, these knives, what, what makes them shy? Well, you know, uh, the Pathfinder novel is all about this uh, sort of very canny young lady who is a a, a rogue of sorts, and does not prefer open confrontation, and as a result does a lot of stabbing in the back, which, you know, you might refer to as a shy knife. I like that. It's it's almost a play on words. Yeah. Which, which I enjoy. Well, you, you do enjoy your plays on words. I do. Interesting that you were writing a Pathfinder novel, because some might say and I, I'm not saying I say this, but some might say that the Pathfinder novels are a bit of a throwback to uh, a type of fiction that you and I cut our teeth on, probably right. in the right. 1980s and 90s, of adventure-based, fun, somewhat stark delineations between good and evil on which we pegged our moral compass. You're speaking of uh, novels like uh, Dragonlance, perchance? Perchance, yes, Dragonlance. Perchance, and, uh, and, you know, novels in which they used words like perchance. That's right. But, uh, but I think there's sort of like a, this, this sense of, we, we kind of talked about this formative fiction that we cut our teeth on that, that seems to have gone away a bit. This is going to be as much of it being written currently, but we still have all of this formative fiction that, that I think new readers are still cutting their teeth on. So I thought we should talk about that. Yeah, uh, I feel like you could make the uh, argument that it's formative, if it is formative fiction, and we're referring to a lot of, you know, what's commonly referred to as, like, maybe tie-in fiction, like, maybe uh, fiction that you get into as a result of being into other stuff. It could also be, like, Halo novels. Uh, our friend Tobias Buchel wrote one such a thing. And uh, you can make the argument that it's formative fiction, so, like, once it forms... You move on to other stuff, but I do think there are aspects within that particular subgenre that I I can only speak for me, but I I kind of miss a lot of the stuff that we used to do. So I think you said something kind of interesting there about formative fiction being tie-in fiction, which carries with it a couple of uh, assumptions that I think we should talk about, and, and one of those being that a lot of these formative fiction uh, people are coming to it. From something else, like either they were tabletop gamers or, or today, you know, video, yeah. video gamers, and and they've come to reading as sort of a like the leveling up in storytelling from the medium that they came from. Which I, that's not that's not my journey, uh, but right. is it yours? Did you, did you access reading in that way? No, I actually went the reverse way. Uh, I I originally really liked uh, tie-in fiction. Uh, because I, th- I think it was actually the covers. There was just a lot of cool shit going on. And, you know, like, uh, cover art is a very contentious issue 
on uh, amongst fans. Uh, but there was a, sort of a very carefree, like straight up, this is an adventure novel. You have like an elf with a bow, and he's fighting an orc, and like you know exactly what is in that novel. And so that really, like, I was like 11, and I'm like, yeah, I like that. I, I think my biggest appeal, why I got into it, and I'm like you, I, I read first and then sort of took the books and was so into them that I then discovered, like, the pen and paper Dragonlance RPG game. Yeah. As a result of the fiction. I don't think I ever actually played the game, but I, like, I got all the manuals. I yeah, I'm, I'm very similar to that. Like, uh, I couldn't find a lot of friends to play with. Like, all my friends were not interested in that sort of thing. My crowning glory is when I actually did convince them to all play through for, like, ten games, and then everyone got bored, but, uh... Uh, like, I, I've also had all the manuals, and I still have a lot of, uh, the 5th edition D&D manuals, just because I really like the art and the stories and whatnot. But I think the reason I got so into time fiction, it wasn't the first thing I read. I mean, I read, like, uh, the Chronicles of Prydain first by Lloyd Alexander, and then I may have even read The Sword of Shannara before I read the Italian fiction, although, yeah, uh, let's be honest, The Sword of Shannara is kind of Italian fiction. But, um... Uh, you, be, you better be careful what you say. That's being turned into a TV, a TV show it's soon. It's true. They will have they will have power. But I think they the reason I got so into Dragonlance was because there was so much of it. Like I could go in and look at the shelf and be like, "Oh, if I'm into this, I'm set for like the year." Yeah, like, there's 75 of these covers. Yeah, I was about to bring up uh, another thing that's not tie-in fiction, but has a vastness to it, uh, and that is uh, Redwall. Sure. Mosflower Abbey, which uh, has that very stark delineation of good versus evil, and in fact, uh, it, it kind of like really messed with me when I read Outcast of Redwall, because I'm like, oh, this, is, this, this has some peculiar undertones to it. But I think you, you hit something there, like, there's so much of it. And I think what's really interesting is that uh, it might be what draws people into that sort of fiction, and something I really miss about uh, formative fiction, is that it all tends to be this sort of vast world in which there are just, like, a few... There's a handful of adventures going on at any given time. And that's, you know, that's because it's a... You know, it's a it's a, uh, a shared world. It's, a, it's an intellectual property that does not belong to the authors. But I thought there was something really interesting in, like, uh, reading, you know, Dragonlance. And you could read about one character off on one side of the world having an adventure that might threaten the world. But then on, you could read another novel where someone was else on the other uh, side of the world having an adventure. So you could sort of, you had this very big diversity of adventures. And uh, it lent a sort of... It lent a sort of intimacy within that vastness, because you had this you had this huge world, but no one person like was controlling it. It didn't feel quite so small for a lot of books today that we have. I feel like for as big as the plots go and as deep as the schemes get, uh, I feel they still feel kind of small because they all this these characters all take up the entire world. You know, let's say, let's just use the one everybody knows, which is Song and Ice and Fire, right? 
It's mm-hmm. just George. George clearly owns it. Um, but right. In the case of Dragonlance, who owns Dragonlance? Uh, who owns that setting? And I would argue that the reader really owns it in a way that, yeah, Wizards of the Coast owns it or, or TSR, whoever the hell owns it these days. But the reader owns it because no author has their own ownership of the entire world. Right. Uh, and the whole map is knowable in a way that is, that, you know, most fantasy novels aren't because we only see a tiny sliver of the world. But in Dragonlance, like, we knew every nook and cranny of that entire, the entire world. Yeah. Um, and if, and if you didn't know it, somebody's probably writing a story in it. You can go, you can go see it. I don't know. I think there's something to that where you, you feel this intimate personal connection as the reader to a knowable, made up world that you can know as well as you know our world. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like you're onto something, but I also kind of disagree in that, like, you know, like, to use Song of Ice and Fire, we kind of do get to see the whole world. And I feel like that's almost what makes it seem so small, is because no one said, like, you know, like, when early on in the novels, people would mention Dorne, and... I'm like, well, what's, what's going on in Dorne? What, what is Dorne? And I would get a few tidbits of it, and I could imagine what was going on in Dorne. But I didn't get to see it, and I thought that was kind of cool. But once we actually found out what was going on in Dorne, and the characters from there, it's like, oh, well, that answers that. And I think kind of like the modern reader's insatiable lust for world building means that there's not a lot of, uh, a lot of room to have those unexplored moments of imagination like there was in uh, Forgotten Realms or in Dragonlance. Have you ever been at a party where there were like lots of interesting conversations going on and then someone super famous walked into the room and just sucked all the air out of it? Yes. Okay. So that that's kind of like the analogy that I feel like you're almost using where like there's nothing inherently larger or smaller about the world of A Song of Nice and Fire versus, right. versus Faerun. But the characters that George inhabits in his world have sucked, all, almost sucked the life out of the world because they inhabit every space of it. Yes, I think that's, I think that's totally accurate. There's like no room for anything else to be going on. Like, uh, one of the, one of the interesting pieces that happen in Dragonlance is you have you know, the dragons of, what is it, Autumn Twilight, dragons of Spring Dawning, dragons of Winter Night. I, I'm pretty sure that's not the correct order. But that was sort of the central line of Dragonlance stories. They told the whole tale of dragons and gods trying to fuck shit up and whatnot. Um, but within that, you also had these tales of, like, uh, dwarves trying to eke out a living. Uh, there was a there was an interesting, well-received series that I didn't get to read because I was just getting out of it. But uh, this this series called Doom Brigade, which was just about bridge builders in a war. And it just sort of talked about their adventures, their relationships, that sort of thing. It wasn't, they weren't world-threatening, they were just trying to survive. And I really, I really liked that. And I feel like the modern reader kind of demands that overarching you know, everything is at stake, plot. And, you know, yeah, that's very interesting and whatnot, but uh, it sort of does not leave room for people to sort of forge out their own intimate favorites. That's, that's interesting, too, and there's something there about 
you know, the Dragonlance stories and, and the, uh, and the Forgotten Realm stories. I mean, if you just look at the Dritz canon, where you've got we're kind of, we, we might uh, mispronounce or multiple pronounce it is, what it is because we we thought we knew what it sounded like. But no, no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, Bob Salvatore will not appreciate our Bob Salvatore will, he used to be a boxer. He'll come to our house and punch us in the mouth. That's okay. Uh, He's but, not listening to this. Uh, he has better things, things to do. do. <laughs> way better things to do. But so, the Icewind Dale trilogy, which is sort of the equivalent uh, in Forgotten Realms to the dragons of, of whatever season. I would uh, say it's it's equivalent to anyone. It's more, it's equivalent to Dritz. It introduced us to Dritz. Right, right. But they, were, they had the whole, like, Avatar trilogy that was the main. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because that was all about, uh, that actually coincided with the second edition, I believe. In, uh, oh, was that all about Elminster? Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't all about Elminster, but it was about the gods coming down and being bound to mortal bodies on Earth and this group of adventurers who was trying to solve it and uh, save Mistara, I believe her name was. Is that, but, the, uh, is that the cleric quartet? No! Oh, boy, wow. Um, <laughs> dealing with a, even with a real amateur here, I see. <laughs> no, the cleric quintet was uh, was that sort of intimate adventure. There was not actually quite a bit of uh, there was not actually a lot of horrifying world-ending stuff going on. It was more about uh, Catterley, the cleric, and the relationships with his friends. Same as you know, like Drizzt was mostly about. Uh, about relationships and so forth. Alright, well what I was getting at was the Ice right. Dale trilogy, which is the first appearance of the our erstwhile uh, yes. drow dual wielding uh, man beast that is Drizzt. Yeah. Uh, so that, that trilogy came first and it was sort of originally you know, he was gonna be sort of an ancillary character to the to the main characters and, and that probably changed over time. But then like the next series was a prequel series. Um, yes. I like the weird thing about a lot of these books with both Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms is like this complete and utter willingness to jump backwards and forwards in time and like us as the reader not remotely giving a shit that we already know the outcome. You know, like prequels don't, don't normally work particularly well because they are usually not the most interesting story because if they were, they would have been told first. But like for whatever reason in Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and like the time things, like they work beautifully. Well, I think it goes to that uh, sort of knowledge of intimacy. Like, uh, when we first meet Drizzt, he just sort of mentions his past, and, you know, it's all very vague and mysterious. And then we get the prequel trilogy, which explores that, but it doesn't get any less intimate. Like, the mystery of the mystery might go away, but that's sort of rewarded with a more intimate uh, knowledge of Drizzt, a sort of further understanding. And like it doesn't, it doesn't get so big. It doesn't get big. Like it just, uh, it remains sort of small, careful, and it lets you relate to that one character. Like you don't have to. It doesn't have to be a world-ending thing. Would you agree that in Dragonlance, Raceland is the Drizzt character? I would say so. Um, and you know, like I used to have this opinion. That uh, Drizzt and I suppose Raceland 
were sort of tailor made for fourteen year old boys because they are like they're misunderstood. They are but all they have all these hidden talents and no one appreciates them except for except for like the beautiful people. But they're also physically uh, repellent for the society with which right. in which they live. Right, and they're also like forge deep connections to women that are so virtuous that they don't actually get made. Just, just like you when you were fourteen, and just like me. So it's true, minus the forming meaningful relationships. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, but you see, but I used to think that this was just uh, that this was like a strictly male thing. But I've had uh, conversations with your friend and mine, Mallory O'Mara who is an accomplished storyteller in and of herself, and who also loved the Driz novels. And I think those uh, those feelings of loneliness and being outcast and not being appreciated obviously speak a lot to younger people. But I think it's that intimacy that kind of forges that strong connection to those books, because when it's that small, it despite the fact that Driz feels... Well, that Drizzt sells a, sh- a shit ton of books. It feels like that adventure is there just for you, and you relate to it. But to a, to an extent, this is why everyone was pitching Song of Ice and Fire became so huge. It's like, oh, well, no, it's not special. Which I don't necessarily agree with, but I can see the logic. Right. So, one of the things that we sort of said at the beginning of this was that, or I said at the beginning of this, was that formative fiction as we have loosely defined it over the past several minutes, is something that we don't see as much of anymore, and that a lot of the classic formative fantasy novels are still being read by young readers uh, as access points, like David Eddings' Pawn of Prophecy and sort of Shannara and all of these tie-in books that we've just talked about, and the new t- and I guess the new tie-in books to a lesser extent, but I mean, I've read some Halo books, and I've read um, some Pathfinder books in there, and they, and they are more modern. Than, yeah. than, than what we're talking about. But I would argue that it isn't so much that, that, that there aren't modern books being written in the same motif, it's just they're being classified differently. So, like, I read a, a YA novel called Cinder, mm. which is a, which is a functionally a, a, re- a post-apocalyptic, you know, dystopian retelling of the Cinderella myth. Yeah. You know, but the main character is this young cyborg girl huh. who because she's a cyborg is loathsome to the people that she lives with. Yeah. She has special and unique abilities that allow her to do things that nobody else can do. And and she's empowered in, in just the same way that we're talking about with Driz and, and Raceland, only it's a girl and she's uh, but and it's and it's sort of science fictional, but, but really it's it's the exact same type of narrative. And I wonder if it's just things have shifted so we're not getting this sort of like and, and as you said, like sort of this tacitly whether it appealed to women or not, like Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance always felt tacitly marketed to young boys. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the shift that we've seen, is it's just not being pushed that way anymore. I don't know. Maybe the need for formative fiction is being met by YA right now. But I, I think what we're finding is that uh, if, if I'm going to go read Dragonlance for the first yeah. time as a young reader, where am I starting? Yeah. I'm not starting with the stuff that was read today or written today. I don't think I'm still probably starting with the old classics and then working my way up. I and mean, that's how I always read. I feel like there are three stages of a fantasy reader. You start off as sort of a young grub 
a pupae, if you will, and you start with this formative fiction, it's doing a lot of stuff, but some of the stuff that you want, it can't give you. So you move on to, to more advanced stuff, and then you come to really loathe and deride the, uh, the, the formative fiction stuff. Uh, perhaps as a way of, like, shaking that, or, like, rejecting that. Because, like, uh, I, I used to face this when, uh, book bloggers and all, they would constantly shit on my work for being, like, too D&D or whatever. But then you hit another stage in your life where you're like, holy shit, I kind I kind of do miss that stuff that I read. And I think, uh, I think a good example of, like, the third stage writing is, uh, The Lies of Lachlamora, which is very much its own world. But it still has that very small intimacy to it, and it relies a lot on a lot of tropes, but they're all done in a way that really makes them Scott's own. But you can almost look at the lives of Lachlamora and the Gentleman Bastard series and see the same kind of evolution that we're talking about within that own series, right? Right. Where, like, it begins with sort of this very much like entry-level work of fantasy, and then now we're three books in it, it's like all of a sudden Scott has gone from that to something pretty recognizable as, as epic adult fantasy. Yeah, and you know, like, I wouldn't... But at the same time, it still has a lot of that energy and fun that you find in formative fiction and, you know, what I really miss about that formative fiction is our ability to just have fun with it. That concept of energy and, like, forward momentum is an interesting one. I think it kind of leads us into a Maybe, like, trying to put a better finger on what we mean by formative fiction. I mean, like, when I think of formative fiction, I think of something that's, like, playing with tropes, you know, dealing with teen angst, because that's, you know, most series are going to be kind of that, that, that area. Yeah. But then you talk about this, like, it's, constant, it's almost like voice, right? Or what I believe I told you once uh, was that all fantasy, all, most fantasy these days is a reaction to tropes of older fantasy. And the main difference is whether the author loves those tropes or hates those tropes. And, like, I have read fiction that is obviously very good, but where the author just really has a very clear contempt and utter hatred for uh, fantasy as a genre, and it just comes off the page how much he despises what what he's doing. And this used to be more prevalent, but, you know, you you would go, like, um, every month with seeing a new interview by someone who said, like, I'm going to redeem fantasy. I'm going to fix it. And, like, always their books were just so hateful. They could be very good, but they were just so uncomfortable to read. The authors that really like those tropes are the ones that will still play with them and tinker with them and subvert them. But it's clear that it comes from a place of great joy, and that energy transfers. I'm reading uh, Night's Shadow by Sebastian de Castell, which is the second in his Great Coach trilogy, the first one being Traitor's Blade. And they are both immense amounts of fun. And it's, it, you know, there are, there are a lot of tropes and some of them. One of them, actually, is just kind of weird where there's like a sexy nun who heals with the power of sex. But aside from that, it's like everything else is really interesting and really energetic and really fun. And I feel like formative fiction was kind of forming those tropes. Like, they were, like, raw trope. And so it was hard It was hard not for them to be formed. The people reading it 
ostensibly don't know the tropes. They're learning them for the first time or, they, or for the first couple of times. And so, so many of today's writers read that work and are now responding to it, where 20 years ago and 25 years ago, there wasn't nearly the breadth of canon to respond to. They were in many ways, I don't want to say developing the canon, because that gives them a shitload more credit than they deserve, but like, I don't feel like they were writing with the same level of self-awareness that almost every writer today, you know, can't, kind of, you can't avoid it. It feels like we got extremely anxious as a genre a while back. Like, I don't know if you ever had this moment when you were growing up and, like, you know, the games you were playing with your friends, everything, like, you were out back maybe pretending to be on Mars or something, and then you would do this for a couple of years, and then suddenly one kid would say, this is all a little stupid, isn't it? And, like, you you might think, like, no, it's not stupid, but, like, deep down, you can, is it, is it kind of stupid? So it feels like some time ago, maybe ten, anywhere from, like, five to ten years ago, someone said, ah, you know, this, this is kind of stupid, isn't it? Shouldn't we be doing something more? And I feel like we lost. You know, part of that was a grimdark thing, which we have covered amply, so let's not talk about it anymore. But, uh, also, part of it was sort of the need for more overarching, very serious, dare I say, socially responsible stories that I, I have a hard time reading. But then you look at it, and I think you're right that, that uh, I mean, this is sort of, again, comes up from this group of writers today. Yeah. Who, you know, they, they didn't, like, just discover the genre one day. Like, you know, most of the writers in the field today yeah. are like geek. You know, they bleed geek um, and have their entire lives. And so coming up, they faced all the same derision that you just talked about, right? Like this notion that like one day, you know, you're out trying to play Dragonlance, the next day like your buddy's like punching you for mentioning it in front of a girl because uh. he thinks it's going to hurt his chances with, with you know, the girl he's trying to pick up. Yeah. And, and so, like, we've all been there in these situations. And so, you know, fast forward 30 years, and all of a sudden we're trying to claim, you know, we're trying to we're trying to retcon it. We're trying to say, like, yeah, we took some abuse for being into this, but the reality is it's wake. It, it's, it's important, right? We're trying to make it important. It's natural that that's going to happen, I think. And then when you do that, you lose sight of sort of where you started, you know. But, but that said, we, we've moved forward as far as we have, and now we're seeing, you know, we weren't seeing this huge rush of genre films 30 years ago, but we're seeing it now. And I think in large part, that's on the back of this notion of, of it is serious. It's not just fluff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but I also, I also feel like there is a big community push to, like, make it serious. Community is one of my absolutely least favorite words when it comes to discussing writing because I don't, like, I forged individual relationships with my book. They meant something to me. And, like, I feel we're kind of missing out. Like, I feel like what we wanted to do would say, like, oh, this book really resonated with me. And then you meet someone and says, oh, yeah, this book also really resonated with me. 
and then you become friends over that. That was the ideal of community, but I feel like in a lot of ways it twists towards here is a checklist of books that will really resonate with you. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, we're being told that it will resonate with us. And, like, I don't know if I want to go back and say this is important. I would rather, I would rather audiences and readers sort of forge that connection for themselves. And, like, I feel that was really easy to do with formative fiction because obviously, like, you're very fresh and new. And, you know, you can't help but form an individual connection because you have nothing else to base it on. But as you get older, uh, you know, you sort of, and you become exposed to the internet and communal uh, shit talk, you sort of start getting expectations on which to base your opinions. Modern formative fiction that we're talking about, like our formative fiction, in my opinion, had like a very generally had a very clear and precise moral compass in that there was good and evil. We The, the good guy was the protagonist and we rooted for him to turn yes. back the evil horde of whatever. Yeah, there was there was a certain liberty in being able to like just kill billions of books. Right. But today's young adult fiction, and let's just use, again, I'll, you know, I'll cherry pick the most uh, well-known one, which is The Hunger Games. Uh, I mean, even if you've only seen the films and not read the books, I've done both, but uh, <laughs> there's no moral high ground in the whole... I mean, everybody has does something that is, you know, questionably ethical and moral, and even our main character, who we're clearly rooting for, is, is deeply flawed and makes... You know the kinds of mis- the kinds of choices that we would not necessarily praise, and that, I think that makes young adult fiction today inherently more challenging. Is there something to be said for like keeping it simple? You know, like uh, we've been talking a lot about stuff we would like to keep from, or like see return from formative fiction. I do think uh, it's worth mentioning that there is some stuff that you know I think we could do without. And I believe the the moral distinction is one of them. And, you know, like, if formative fiction met all our needs, we would never move on to Song of Ice and Fire. We would just read about Drizzt and his buddies all year round. I feel like, I don't, I'm sure some of our listeners, uh, all three of them, might have had an issue at some point when they thought, like, well, now, hold on. Is every orc just irredeemably evil? And, you know, they look at maybe the alignment system in D&D and be like, all right, so, like, why are all goblins chaotic evil? Like, how did that happen? And I feel like that, uh, you know, that's that need for, like, a broader understanding sort of breaks people out of of uh, formative fiction. And I think maybe Drizzt contributes to that a lot because he sort of, it sort of raised that question. Uh... So I'm not keen to see that return, uh, though I do think there are there is like a sizable number of people who, in their quest for calling for very morally responsible messages in books, and I'm not I'm not saying message fiction, but there are people who you know really want that like socially responsible narrative. I feel like a lot of them do kind of push that idea that we need to have an unquestionably moral character. But I say, uh, you know, formative fiction is all the stronger without that moral compass. Because when we're talking about this, we're talking about 
forming that individual connection, having that resonate with you, and being misunderstood and sort of having it relate to your personal experience, I, you know, I think like morally questionable characters, people who have done, have made mistakes, who have messed up, who have like ruined relationships, I think that resonates much better than, you know, this guy who has never done anything wrong, but these, these monsters who are always perpetually evil, like that's harder to relate to. But then again, like that simplicity might just draw you in because you don't have to, you don't need that moral quandary to get invested. I'm trying to, you know, think back to myself. And of course, I've tried to go back and read, say, The Dragons of Twilight. Yeah, I, I, I can't. You know, here's the thing. Um, it's amazing what the mind of a young kid can fill in the blanks of. Yeah. Because that writing leaves, you know, holes a truckload wide. I mean, I remember I went back and I read the first part of Dragons of Twilight, and I was like, they got out of, like, they got across the river out of Solace in, like, the first three chapters. And, like, in my mind, that was, like, half of the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I filled in all these details in my memory that just weren't there. Would I have enjoyed those books more at the time if, like, Riverwind and Goldmoon were having, like, legit marital problems in the midst of this, like, adventure? And, like, we're actually having a conversation about, you know, I don't know, the cultural appropriation of their people or, uh, you know, or, 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 or Raceland being allowed to actually be openly, openly as horrible as he actually is and not having to be sort of sugarcoated by the author who knew she couldn't get, a, you know, she couldn't really get away with him being outright evil. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it more. I, I feel like probably a lot of it would have gone over my head. Because, like, apparently there were sex scenes in Dragonlance. Not, like, sex scenes, but scenes that preluded to sex. They refer to it as, like, the boot scene. Like, any time the character removed the boots of another character, that was, like, code for, uh, they were about to bone. And then, you know, fade to black. But I didn't notice that at all. Kitty R. Antennas definitely had sex at one point, right? See, like, that, that sort of... I was a fucking uh, really lame kid, I guess, because like I, I didn't see why everyone was so fuck, fucked up over Kiara, because all of the men, like Tannis, is fucked up over her. Caramon is fucked up over her. Well, he's a brother. Sturm uh, too, right? Sturm like was the most fucked up over her. They all got like, they all like had it bad for this girl. Well, she was the only girl for forever. Well, there was like Lorana. No, no, but like when they were coming up as the companions, you know, yeah, questing yeah. out of Solace, she was the only girl in the entire village, as far as I can yeah. tell. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely that, but like, at the same time, it's like, um, you know, like, I didn't know what was going on. So, but at the same time, like, Goldwind and River, no, Gold Moon and Riverwind, oh god, so embarrassing, uh, Having marital problems, that might not resonate with me, because, like, my parents were and still are happily married, but, like, what if it was a kid who, like, whose parents were going for a divorce, would that have helped them? Right. I think there, you know, is, there, there was room for a lot of that. And, you know, maybe that was one, you know, we're talking about these things, these adventures happening in, like, pockets. Maybe there were, like, pockets within those pockets, like, pockets of individual conflict, because, like, I couldn't understand 
uh, you know, a love triangle with a half-elf, a dark knight, and a paladin. But I could certainly understand, like, Grizz being loathed and hated. So, like, I think there was a lot of room for individual... Like, there were just a bunch of little little threads of conflict that anyone could grab onto. Were you about the same age as I was when you read Dragonlance, you know, from 13 or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, who did you imprint on? So, my, my first Dragonlance thing... Uh, came about from uh, my mom buying me a copy of Kaz the Minotaur. I read that one. I think Kaz kind of related to me really well because he was this... I was a big kid, you know? And, like, I could get rough with people without intending to. And But, like, with Kaz, there was this, uh, this very strong concept of honor and, you know, this code of behavior and you do this but not this. And, like, it's okay to do this, but, you know, you need to have compassion for these people and whatnot. And, you know, I remember people were, like, weird at that. Like, well, it's a minotaur. Shouldn't he be, like, some sort of savage? But it's like, no, he's, he held himself to a higher standard. And I really, that really resonated with me. You know, looking back, like, I think I was, Caramon was kind of my guy. And, um, again, because I was kind of the big, the big guy, right? Yeah. So I think there was that same sort of, you know, everybody assuming that you're not, Maybe not the brightest bulb, or that you can be picked on because you won't respond because you you don't want to hurt them. Yeah, and they knew they could pick on you then because you wouldn't respond, and, and that you know that. And I think it's funny when you look at that 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 book series. There's kind of something for everybody. I mean, there's a character archetype in that that fits just about every type of kid. Yeah, like except Flint. <laughs> well, Flint. Flint was for, like, an audience wiser than us. It's for your parents, you know, the little, little, the one for your parents to get into. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting point, is because so many of these formative fictions, and I think it's because a lot of them were tie-in, which meant they all sort of revolved around this concept of D&D, but you had this concept of the adventuring party. And I think in the weaker books, they were all sort of united in their own decision. But one of the things Dragonlance did really well was make it this very diverse group where people could kind of resonate with different, with different people. Because, you know, Kaz and Sturm were actually not too different. Sturm had a lot of expectations heaped upon him that he wanted to rebel from. One of the re- reasons I get compared to D&D a lot is because my books do involve an adventuring party. But I feel like it's totally worth it because everyone, every one of my readers has their own favorite character who resonates with them. And that story becomes a little more nearer and dearer to them as a result. Uh, and you know, like with a Drizzt, uh, he was maybe less of a diverse, uh, group of conflicts, but uh, more of a support group, because his uh, friends, they might not always see eye to eye, but they were always there to help each other out. And, you know, like, Brunor was there to assure Drizzt he wasn't a monster, and Drizzt was there to sort of, like, assure Brunor that he could achieve what he wanted to. So, like, I feel there were a lot of characters where you could resonate and you don't really get that in uh, in a lot of books, like Song of Ice and Fire. There's not that many people you can like straight up uh, 
I like I don't know. Maybe maybe someone will chime in with how someone else, how another uh, character resonated with them. But I haven't found anyone in uh, Song of Ice and Fire that I would say, yeah, that's my guy. No, I mean I always felt like you know I was kind of Jon Snow's always been the character I liked the most. Yeah, but like everyone likes Jon. Well, but it, it didn't have anything to do with with my feelings about his character or how he related to me. It was just. You know, the White Wall was cool. But yeah, like, the White Wall was cool. He's he's the only one doing the the most morally unambiguous thing, uh, right? And and well, and he's he's also the one that does the most fighting. Let's be honest. Like, yeah, you no, know, he he's the one that actually gets to do shit. So I, I don't think it's any surprise. And if you and I think I you know um, looking at like the Wheel of Time. I mean, Matt is my favorite character, and I think I probably imprinted on him a little bit. I, I guess I could kind of argue that as I've gotten older, it's harder and harder for me to imprint on characters because there aren't few characters in fantasy deal with the things I deal with now. Like how many, how much protein to ration? Right, or like, or like how many, me. how many fantasy characters are like genuinely dealing with like how to juggle a day job, two children, a part-time job, you know, with like talking about genre stuff on the internet. I mean, it's just my, <laughs> it's, very niche, it's a very niche novel. We're talking about like uh, we're talking about like self awareness. Well, like, like you you don't get much more self aware than a genre character talking about the genre. We've talked about formative fiction for a while, and so just before we started the show, I asked you if they had any questions for us. So I'm going to ask some questions, okay? Beyond this is from Dave Walreich, who's one of the nicest people in the world. He says, or David Walreich, he says, beyond dual wielding and adolescent outcast angst, what is Dritz? literary legacy. You know, you did mention this earlier and I this is gonna this is gonna sound this is this like might validate every one of my critics who call me like D D bullshit. But really dual wielding became a, a big thing in like pop culture after Grizz, didn't it? Yeah man, like I I think it's really kind of pioneered this whole image that we have. I mean you see, especially like the dual wielding katanas that you see, which are like completely anachronistic in every way, shape, or yeah, form. Like, yeah, or like just any character. When you say, when I say like this character wields two swords, I guarantee you everyone thinks to the same image of like a lightly armored dude, probably in a cloak, or you know, not necessarily a dude, uh, a girl, or a lady, I'm sorry, uh, but, you know, someone lightly armored, kind of rugged, mysterious, because, you know, two, oh, two swords. That's one more sword than regular. <laughs> right. Well, think- but that's, that's kind of, that might be his, uh, his literary legacy. He sort of pioneered that mysterious swordsman. Well, he didn't pioneer it. Like, I'm sure some asshole is going to weigh in the comments and be like, actually, uh, in, uh, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, they're blah, blah, blah. shut up. Or the answer to this is always Michael Moorcock. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, like, David Doglish and Brent Weeks and Michael Sullivan, like all of these, like sword fighting rogues, are essentially Dritz. You know, like the Knights yeah. trilogy is Dritz. Like that's his legacy. He made that archetype. He popularized that archetype of the mysterious uh, sword slinger who probably knows a bit of magic, as indeed Durzo Blint did. But yeah, that's that's his legacy, isn't it? Yeah, we'll have to ask Brent Week sometimes if Durzo Blint is really Dritz Stewart. Yeah, if you spell it backwards, is it? Is it? Does it, <laughs> does it, does it spell <laughs> That'd be funny. 
The editor Brent, didn't catch that. Oh, it did. Like, now that we know Brent comes to our houses at night and smothers us in our sleep. <laughs> he what? discovered my secrets. No one must. And then he goes around on tour, killing everyone who's listened to this podcast. In his dope shirt. In his dope shirt. We love, we love you, Brent. So, this is another question from, from David that I thought was uh, particularly insightful. What, if anything, does Dritz offer a reader today that isn't better delivered elsewhere? Boy, that is a, that is a, that is an interesting question. Um, but I think it might actually be that, uh, that segued morality. It, it might be. I, I actually think it's, it's the honesty of Bob Salvatore's books. Yeah. It's like, it's not trying to be anything that it's not. But really, that honesty, I don't want to say it hipster, like, but Drizzt was doing it before it was cool, and he was doing it without intending to look cool. Like, this was just something he did, you know? Whereas I feel like in a lot of uh, books that we read that have that Drizzt archetype, it is put there, like, and the author knows, like, this is going to be cool. That's a good. That's a really good point because I think if you if you kind of look at the history of um, Dritz too, like Bob Salvatore didn't know that he was going to be as cool as he was. Yeah, like it was almost like the readers read it and were like, "Yeah, we want more of that guy." Yeah, I think the original trilogy was going to be more about Wolfbar, right? Being barbarian, right? And but uh, that 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 concept of honesty that really that really hits me because that I think is what a lot of people miss when they get when they get older because I feel like one of the real magic parts of Driz is that he is not reactive fiction. A lot of our books these days we are reacting to something. We are reacting to the notion that uh that fantasy was too sterilized. We are reacting to the notion that there are too many of a certain type of people in fantasy. And that really does bleed across into our into our writing, and you can pick it up pretty easily if you're a reader. But with Drizzt, I think you can really hit that moment where the author is not trying to be anything but himself, and the story takes its own life. In that, not, it takes on a life of its own. It doesn't commit suicide. I absolutely refuse to use the word message fiction. And I am also not going to be so crass as to say Drizzt doesn't have a point. But because Drizzt is so honest, what point he has, he lets you figure out for yourself. And that, I think, might be what he means. And we would have missed that point without David's wonderful question. So, Thank you, David. Thank you. So we're going to end on this last question here, Sam. Right. If you had to bake Brian McClellan into a cake. Into a cake? Into a cake. What kind of cake would it be? So, like, I am actually... Am I murdering him? <laughs> it's unclear. I mean, it does say you would bake him into a cake, so yes, you would be murdering him. I I don't well, think... Well, no, no, no. Like, am I, am I straight up killing him and turning him into an ingredient... Or, like, is it a stripper thing where, well, like, so I'm, going, I'm would, going to wheel him in in a giant cake and he's going to jump out? I think I would be more interested in Brian jumping out of a cake as opposed to murdering him. I mean... Yeah, I don't want to murder Brian. I like I Brian. Like, he's I like Brian. I like his work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but if he's jumping out of a cake, then 
without a doubt, it would have to be a big cake, wouldn't it? I mean, it could be a small cake. Well, he's not he's not necessarily a big guy, but, you know, he, you, you need a cake big enough to fit him in. Well, a human. I mean, you have to put a human. So, yeah, You'd it have would to have to be a large cake, yes. So, I would, think, like, I would think a tiered cake would be appropriate. So, I guess my answer would be, I would think of the situation in which it would be most inappropriate for Brian to leap out of a cake. Which would probably be a someone's funeral. Sure, and I, I think I think just because you don't want to give Brian the temptation to eat the cake, right? Because he's inside of it, so it can't be chocolate cake. So just chocolate no. cake, Brian would eat his way out. Yeah, no, it did be coconut. He's <laughs> gonna go with carrot. But no, like coconut, nobody really likes. But more than that, I would tell him like we're celebrate because you know. Uh, Brian is a student of Sanderson, loves Sanderson's books. We would tell him, this is Brian, this is Brandon Sanderson's, uh, 50th anniversary of being, or, you know, some kind of special event for Brandon Sanderson. So, we need you, his crowning glory, to leap out of the cake. And then I would put him in the cake, and you, cause now he's not tempted to eat out of it, because he, you know, he's gotta do this for Brandon. He's gotta make it good. And then I would wheel him in to, an old lady's funeral. Because <laughs> that's what friends do. Position the cake next to next to the door. And then as they're carrying the coffin out, I would say, Now, Brian! And he would leap out and say, Surprise, Brandon! And he would land on the coffin. And it would go clattering to the ground. And he would get all tangled up. And somehow the old lady's uh, body would get like tangled up in his belt or something. And so, uh, Ryan would be running from an angry mob, covered in cake, dragging. So, uh, to, just to round this out, Sam, if you were going yes. to recommend uh, the, the listeners of this uh, fine podcast one piece of formative fiction that they should read, uh, even today, to find out what we're talking about, what would you recommend? I would start with The Crystal Shard which is the first in the Icewind Dale trilogy. And, you know, we've talked a lot about Dragonlance, and we've talked a lot about Drizzt. But I have to go I have to go with Drizzt on this, because while Dragonlance kind of got me into fantasy fiction, I feel like Drizzt kind of saw me out, and not in a bad way. And I feel like that story kind of continued to inspire me to make more active fiction and maybe less reactive fiction. Uh, I have been toying with the idea of doing a Drizzt reread, maybe starting in November after all my cons are done, and, and you know maybe you all can join me for that. Uh, we may we may do just that. I would have to recommend a Dragonlance book, being the big Dragonlance uh, fanboy that I once was, and there's probably no other place to start than the Dragons of Autumn Twilight. But the uh, the Test of the Twins is another solid one. Which Test of the Twins, Legend of Huma is not bad. Yeah, you know it's funny. A lot of the other books sort of. The, there's a lot of standalones in the Dragonlance world, and they're right. actually all part of. A lot of them are part of that heroes uh, line, which began with with with, uh, with Huma. Uh, but there's all the Kaz, the Minotaurs, also in that series, and each of them stands alone. A lot of those are pretty good. I think it's worth picking up to to, to see to see the roots. Huma gets a dragon for a girlfriend, which is like that's pretty legit wish fulfillment right there. Well, particularly because his job is dragon slaying. So, oh yeah, that was some fucked up shit. Yeah, 
So she was probably a silver dragon, which means she was. Yeah, so she was the she was color coded. Right. That's that's kind of, that's not uh, not good to see the turn is like color coded dragons. I think generally the color coding of good good and evil, where the evil ones are darker, is probably something that we don't need to ever have back. Well, now that's said. Fair is fair. Red dragons were always so much cooler looking. Like silver dragons and whatnot, they're all like shiny and chrome, whatever. Sure, but like red. If you look in any monsters menu, it's always the chromatic dragons that look way cooler. Wait, are you saying well, you're saying these silver and gold dragons look cooler? Oh no, no, no. I'm saying the red dragons are because well, the they coolest. have color. I got chromatic. Yeah, yeah, chromatic. Cro- they are divided into chromatic and metallic. And for a while, there were like stone dragons and shit. I actually thought the evil dragon, like the black dragon, was like acid spitting, right? And then like yeah. the green dragon was like noxious fumes. Yeah, they noxious fumes. Red is fire, blue is lightning, and white is cold. You know, interestingly, just to get off on a tangent, because but the Dragonlance books, you never actually see the good dragons because, like, if all the good dragons showed up, the whole the whole book would be pointless. So they yeah. had to like plot maneuver the good dragons out of the story for most of it. You don't notice that? Yeah, but that was a good. That was a good. It was. It forces a build scene, which made it work. But, like, towards the end, like, everyone was flying dragons, and it was almost routinely blues versus uh, silvers. But I don't, what does silver shoot? I don't even know. Uh, alright, so within Dragonlands, everyone could breathe fire, but, like, no, I that's think. That's not right. Well, like, okay, no, wait, uh, all, all, no, the chromatics have two breath weapons. And I don't know if this was the same for Dragonlance. I know silvers breathe fire and something else. Because uh, I know blues were lightning. Yes. And whites were ice. Silver dragons. dragons. We need to ask. We need to ask Jared because I am almost certain that all the chromatic dragons could breathe fire as well as something else. Hold on. But we do not have time for you to fucking. Their breath weapons. Okay, the silver dragon's breath weapon is cone of cold and paralyzing gas. Well, no, that's just for D&D. It was different for, uh, for Dragonlance. This is Dragonlance. It is. I'm looking at Dragon. Gold dragons are, uh, uh, cone of fire and chlorine gas. Alright, uh, well, anyways. Wait, what was, that was, that was a green dragon? That was a gold. Gold dragon, okay, uh. Bronze is lightning and gas. Alright, well, you know, you get the idea. Uh, Jared Shuren and Mavesh Morad are doing a Dragonlance reread for Tor, and we will consult with them. They're pretty clever. It's a good reread. People should read it. They're, they're yeah. Yeah, yeah. Alright, well, Sam, this has been us on Formative Fiction. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, we made, like, surprisingly few dick jokes, so I feel like we might have let someone down. Uh, we did, especially with the name Drizzt. There were lots of opportunities. There, there were, there were lots. Well, we took the high road. We did take the high road. Um, Samisode number five did not turn into Bromisode. Bromisode? I don't think. That so. sounds like Bromicide. Which <laughs> could be our new mystery. It does. I like that. Our new crime thriller, Bromicide. <laughs> Alright, Sam. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. This has been Rocket Pop.